I'm here with David Rothenberg, who is an improvising musician of all sorts, uh, with all sorts of collaborators uh, from all over the world and from all over the species that are available to collaborate with. And uh, he's a philosopher and uh, a lot more so. Uh, suggest digging into his Wikipedia page and just losing yourself uh, and finding what's out there. But uh, welcome to the podcast, David. It's great to talk to you. Thanks. What does it say on that Wikipedia page? I wonder. I mean, just like you can, can be trusted. Just all your collaborators, and you know, okay. right. it's just it's it's dizzying, like a like this flip mm. chart. <laughs> so um, the question that I always like to start with is uh, basically just how does coffee fit into your life, if it does at all? Are you a coffee person? Do you not drink coffee? Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm more of a tea person, but I also drink coffee. Okay. And I'm I'm perfectly happy, like almost all coffee drinkers, to constantly complain about it not quite being right. Or this mm -hmm. coffee is ridiculous. Or this one, how come it was good yesterday and bad today? So I, I'm definitely studying different coffees, and 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 I I feel here in the Hudson Valley we benefited from the improvement in coffee quality during the last year when new cafes have opened of dizzying variety attempts to improve the coffee situation, and it's quite impressive. <laughs> And uh, what sort of tea do you like? I like black tea, I like very good black tea without flavor, but kind of like really good tea, usually with a little milk, which is kind of sacrilegious to tea freaks. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like I have more refined sense of like really liking tea. Coffee, I could happily say, let's no coffee this week, it's okay. But tea, I would miss more. Interesting. But coffee is um, better on the road, you know. Mm -hmm. Coffee's good, you know, the different kinds of coffee. Coffee's more, um, it's more likely to be better not at home. <laughs> Tea right. is likely to be better at home. So that's... When you do drink coffee, is it more espresso, black coffee, coffee with milk? or I like espresso or cortados, not too much milk. I don't like really milky lattes or, or, mm -hmm. or inaccurately named cappuccinos, things like that. Where, but mm -hmm. I also like it with milk. And, and I also like being in places like in the Dominican Republic where like if you were going to have a cafe con leche in the afternoon they would just laugh at you like mm -hmm. an idiot it's just not done <laughs> well now that we have that out of the way and I have uh, my sense of who you actually are yeah, uh, now you can take no we figured you out it's like the you're, it's like the Enneagram you've analyzed my personality <laughs> the nine coffee resonances or exactly like that well, uh, so I guess I, I wanted to sort of go through a few different uh, different types of animals as kind of like the chapters of this conversation. But uh, before we even get to animals, I I sort of want to like run some things by you. And I don't have a good term for this. I'm calling it meta music, and I hate how much meta is being said. But um, maybe you have bad. a bit. Meta music is okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe well, I have, have another bit. word that I just learned yesterday, and I've seen it several times meaning different things. As opposed to broadcasting, narrow casting. Hmm. Okay, is that like more it surgical? Means different things depends. Uh, uh, the fir there's, uh, first, I found a book called Narrow Cast that's about the role of poets and audio technology hmm. during this brief period when it was cool and weird to have a tape recorder from the 60s to the 70s, where Allen Ginsberg, for example, had a tape recorder, carried it around. William Burroughs used tape recorder in the composition of books like Naked Lunch. But after a few years, it was just an obvious thing. Everyone had it. It was no longer cool. Mm -hmm. So that book talked about narrow casting as like poets experimenting with audio technology. Today, I saw the word used in terms of like very precise kinds of broadcast media 
in an article saying there's no such thing as a hit TV show anymore that everyone's going to watch. Mm-hmm. The most successful TV shows are watched by one tenth the amount of people than watched things like in the 90s. Mm-hmm. It's all narrow casting now. Everything is broadcast to a narrow niche audience because we have so much to choose from. Everything's mm-hmm. fragmented. It's very hard to reach everyone with one thing. Yeah, so the so, catch-all doesn't work anymore. What that has to do with meta music? I don't know. I think it does <laughs> somehow. <laughs> well, so in thinking about like, you know, whales and birds and insects, which are all animals that you've uh, collaborated with, you know, you sort of have all these different scales and eventually, you know, maybe we go to microbial and then I, there's a question of like, where does music end, I guess? And so I, I recently put together this presentation that uh, I called the music of menstruation. And I was trying to take a musical lens to uh, the female menstrual cycle. And uh, I'm, I'm doing this like quite seriously, not without it, uh, not trying to be silly or anything. But um, uh, you know, then it occurred to me, like maybe the stock market is in a way musical, just you don't hear it. And, you know, you talked about these whales that do these kind of like, uh, uh, you know, vocalizations that you hear two minutes apart. But when you, you know, scale them down, it's like very clearly even. And so I'm curious, just like where you stop thinking of it as music, uh, if we're just considering music as like, time you know wavelength uh you know sort of uh, frequency spectrum type stuff well you know you brought a lot of interesting things in just then i'm going to ignore <laughs> some of the most interesting things you said that i have questions about and try and answer your question which is where you're saying how far where, where does the music end and begin mm-hmm. and in my book bug music there's one picture i have from a book by curtis rhodes called microsound Okay. I take one picture from his book about the scale of rhythm in the universe. He talks about the Big Bang as this ultimate beat going on, and then you have different geological eras, and then you have life cycles, and then you have like periodicity, like cicadas. There's one diagram, then it goes down to the beat, things we can perceive, then it goes on to microsound, tiny bits of cutting a single sound into thousands of little parts so we can reconceive it as a new sound that book of his is about the invention of granular synthesis one cool. way of making sound and i write in the book yeah you know, curtis rhodes puts up forth granular synthesis as a mirror of the whole sense of scale at all levels of the universe and then he saw that and wrote back he goes that's not what i'm talking about you don't understand it at all so <laughs> be that as it may it's this great idea so where is music in all this wherever you see a pattern, a shape of sound, where the meaning of it comes by getting inside the pattern rather than what it stands for. Mm, Whereas mm-hmm. language is more like patterns of sounds that stand for things. We can explain what they mean. And I think that difference can apply whether you're looking at animal sounds or human sounds or even plant sounds or even microbial sounds. You can take meaning from it different ways in the patterns in itself or what they stand for what their function is what they're supposed to mean two different ways of of taking in material and to me music is when the patterns find their meaning just in themselves awesome i i tend to like that's my baseline assumption and i've always like uh been a little bit irked by people who have like this whole idea of like minor keys are sadder or like you know like these things mean this and um, it's very I think it's just a lot of conditioning and I don't know like I, I find that when it's you know more just it means what it means it, it doesn't mean anything it's just an abstract gesture um, I, that tends to resonate more with me personally so um, I'm glad that you said that 
it is one strand of thought in the philosophy of music that music is about itself rather than standing for emotions. Mm -hmm. Believe it or not, for hundreds of years, people have argued about this, whether music actually stands. Is it a language of the emotions or is it kind of about itself? Of course, it, it, it is both, but you know, which do you hold on to if you had to pick one? Mm -hmm. Well, um, so uh, I also, I noticed that you, uh, on YouTube, you have this concert where you're playing with Jaron Lanier and uh, that sort of like opened up the possibility of you being aware of some other realms that I, I was curious if you'd be aware of. So I'm just, uh, just to name drop a few names to see if they mean anything to you. Does the name Brian Tomasic uh, mean anything to you? I looked at the list of names and there I thought, I, I kind of think I've heard of him, but I can't remember why or what's significant about him. So you can tell me if it's uh, important. Well, he's just, he's, he writes a lot about like uh, insect welfare and like sort of like insect ethics. And yes, there's a book that he wrote that, that I, I read. I can't remember the name or something in relation to when I was writing bug music. I can't remember the name of that book, but uh, I, I feel like he, I'm not aware of any books that he has. Or maybe uh, it's articles, but yeah. yeah. He has like a very, uh, very, you know, scholarly sort of approach to his mm -hmm. blogging. That's uh, super interesting, right. but um, just that, that's name one. Name two is Eliezer Yudkowsky. No, I don't know who that is. Interesting. Okay. Um, I'm not pretend. Uh, I, I just asked because he debated Jaron Lanier and they had like these very different views of philosophy and or of uh, consciousness rather. What was the big nature of their um, debate, would you say, if you're going to summarize it? I guess kind of like a like a radical, limitivist, illusionist sort of Dennett style uh, model of consciousness versus uh, I think Jaron Lanier calls it uh, discipline dualism. I'm not sure what he means by that, but yeah, what um, does he mean by that? He's some. Um... You know, Jaren's a fabulously creative and unique character. Mm -hmm. And uh, one thing that's always resonated with me in, in, in his ideas is he's always said, musical instruments are the most advanced technologies that cultures have produced. Like if you pick a culture somewhere throughout history, their most advanced technology is not weapons or sources of energy, but musical instruments. And very few people say that. And he goes on to explain why. And Jaren, while working on virtual reality and high level technology and, and telemedicine and things like that, he always has collected really cool musical instruments from all over the world. And he plays them whenever he gives a talk about what technology can and can't do. And the basic idea is musical instruments, when they're working, they extend our ability to do things, human ability to, to express ourselves. Mm -hmm in a seamless way. So like extensions of the human body and mind together. And this was the subject of my PhD dissertation long before I'd ever heard of Jaron Lanier or he had maybe even thought about these things. That's what I wrote about. When I heard that he was talking about this, this stuff, I said, I have to meet this guy. Mm -hmm. And by chance, I met him at a Seder at a Greek restaurant in New York City. And that's, that's how we got to be friends. And we played together a lot all over the world. And we made an album that is unreleased. We're always laughing about every time we see each other. Like, do you feel like, so, uh, are you mostly aligned in terms of how you see this type of stuff or is there any interesting uh, area of Where do we disagree? Um, I'd say there's one main disagreement, which is Jaron Lanier, like many people, were, you know, in the Silicon Valley world, they have a heightened sense of how important Silicon Valley technology is mm -hmm. to understanding everything. They think it's really, really important. And it is quite important, but I, as someone further away from that world, might tend to de-emphasize its importance. Mm -hmm. You know, Google, great. Facebook, yeah, I use it, but has it really changed everything about my life? I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. 
Some things I think are relentlessly unimportant, like Twitter and Instagram I don't like because it's all square pictures, make everyone the same. The tendency of technology to make everyone the same is something Jaron does talk about mm -hmm. quite eloquently. We have to be careful of these things, you know. You know, he prefers MySpace. He prefers listservs, groups of people who play the oud and things like that. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, people who talk about cephalopod intelligence, like on their own groups. And these groups, you know, flourish in different Silicon Valley platforms. They're there, but there's a tendency of some of these more successful platforms to make everything the same, make them all look the same. And that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. We should we should celebrate diversity of expression and packaging and, and, and uh, visualizing and everything shouldn't look or sound or feel the same because mm -hmm. we well, all know we're the same and also different but the differences should have a place they can shine away definitely um i, I bring up tomasic and uh Yudkowsky because i feel like um i guess insects to me seem like a more interesting sort of segue into like the philosophical domain um like most people probably think oh whales and birds like yeah they're the singers of the world but like um i think that in general insects are kind of not appreciated i have this reverence for them i think that you share and uh tomasic is like i feel like the most uh you know interested in insects i've ever come across and so what's uh, his favorite insect when he thinks of insects what does he think of i mean i don't know about his favorite but uh like his youtube is basically like all these uh like insects from around his house and like it's kind of bleak honestly like there are a lot of things about like in insect euthanasia how to like do it so that there's the least amount of suffering but um i mean like in terms of like philosophical stuff uh he gets into you know like if we put together the, the aggregate neuronal mass of insects it's like a non-trivial ethical concern and you know for instance nowadays uh insects are being you know suggested as like a great way to save the world by replacing your standard meat with insects and it's like but then you're multiplying your kill count by like trillions. And so there are these weird utilitarian problems. That's right. I wonder how many people who are troubled about eating animals aren't troubled about eating insects or mm -hmm. killing insects. Traditionally, not so many are because we don't tend to ascribe high levels of suffering to them, especially like, you know, those that bite us like mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. By far the most popular video I've ever posted is a short clip of the Dalai Lama killing a mosquito. <laughs> it's from a it's from a Bill Moyers documentary that I think no one else has a copy of. So in the early days of YouTube, I just posted it like you know, people should see this. It's it's cool, and then uh, the millions of views and comments saying His Holiness does not kill the mosquito, merely brushes it away. He basically says, you know. Bill Moyers, the great interviewer, is saying, well, you know, Your Holiness, I notice there's a lot of mosquitoes around here. Uh, how do you uh, deal with this? He goes, well, first mosquito you let uh, bite. No problem. Second mosquito, brush away. A third mosquito? And he goes, hmm, you mean like three strikes and you're out. <laughs> Which I think is, that's a very utilitarian view that probably many people share. <laughs> Those at all sensitive to mosquitoes will probably follow a similar trajectory. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of eating insects, probably people aren't so interested in eating mosquitoes, but who knows, you know, I don't know what percentage of people are vegetarian or vegan or those that are, are very motivated by issues of suffering or the more senses of health and guilt about trashing the planet. And mm -hmm. I wonder, and I haven't really studied it that much. But I'm sympathetic with all the arguments, at least. And with insects, you know, I, I think 
you know, after working on birds and whales and I just was interested in the sounds and I also was preparing that, oh, these cicadas are coming back. This is preparing for 2013, brood number two. I'm going to write this book and that's when I want it to come out. It's kind of preparation. Mm-hmm. That was my plan. And so then the more I listened to them, the more beautiful their sounds started to be. And I, I don't think it's very controversial that people love listening to the sounds of crickets and katydids in summer. Mm-hmm. And that it's just like, it, it maybe more controversial is the idea that our senses of music, our, our interest in music may have evolved in, in a world where we appreciated these sounds and learned from these sounds mm-hmm. over tens of thousands of years. That the sound of insects and their rhythmic trance-like qualities probably influenced human music throughout history. Uh, I think a, another sort of version of some of these questions that I, I would want to ask is like, if you're collaborating with a, a colony of ants or some sort of a, you know, large mass of uh, insects, are you seeing that as it like a, a single organism where it's like, you know, these are effectively like neurons or something, or are you seeing it more as like an ensemble? Well, I just did it with 17 year cicadas, mm-hmm. just released this album made over the last month called Brood Expand, We Emerge. And what I tried to do this time is get a bunch of other musicians to join me. And that will, that's what was most fun about it. Mm-hmm. And I also was thinking like, boy, don't I just do the same things over and over again? What am I going to do differently with these cicadas? Mm-hmm. Of the last two films that I made and like three previous albums, two previous albums. No, three. There's three other albums with cicadas that I've done. What's different now? And I said, okay, we'll have different musicians, but also... We'll have different recording technologies that help to showcase the complexity of these sounds, make them sound really interesting. And that's what was really fun. So it's very humbling to play with millions, literally millions mm-hmm. of singing cicadas. You just want more voice in this giant choir. How much can one individual do? Not so much, really. But of course, humans have a hard time being as quiet as a 17-year cicada. Individually, mm-hmm. they're quite quiet compared to our annual cicadas, where even one can make a huge amount of noise. It's only when there's millions of them do you hear these like three musical strategies. One, one species has a drone-like sound, the other is like a washes of rhythmic noise, and the other is like a shaker-type rhythm. These three sounds going on at the same time. It's, it's really the, the life cycle of the three concurrent species of 17-year cicadas that come out in each brood. This is really like a musical strategy. And I've had a little bit of a hard time convincing these cicada scientists that it really is a musical strategy, but I think I've succeeded after all these years of us hanging out in the same place at time. It's a, there's a musicality to the strategy they have evolved, and that really fascinates me. That's what's going on. Um, something else that you said uh, when you were talking about cicadas in one of these videos, um, you know, you mentioned seventeen, and like, why is it seventeen? And uh, you know, you brought up primeness, and it seems like uh, in everything that I've been reading, like prime numbers have been like, I'm important. So uh, it, I. I'm glad to bring it into this conversation, but um, I considered the same thing in the menstruation presentation where it's like, you know, if you have a 28 day cycle and a year, you can have 13 cycles within that year. And we're so used to 12, but um, you were saying that maybe prime numbers offer some sort of survival tactic and maybe puts out a phase or something. There's different theories about it. The one you most often hear is unlikely to be correct, which is that the cicadas have a prime number cycle because predators have more regular cycles mm, okay that's probably not correct because if you if you're going to look at competition a, a kind of game theory approach to ecology the mm-hmm. strategy cicadas use against predators is just to outnumber them it doesn't matter how many are eaten there's too many gotcha. cicadas 
you won't you won't even have a dent in the population but how did then the prime number cycles evolve i'm interested in this theory of these japanese scientists uh one of them is named yoshimura and he's pointed out that imagine uh, you know why does this only happen in the eastern united states nowhere else in the world are there periodic cicadas with these prime number cycles or periodic cicadas of anything like this at all it's only here what could be possibly special about this area and he's suggesting well there's a particular kind of uneven glaciation that happened here hmm. so that when the ice age melt it was uneven in one place when have some you know all the ice is gone everywhere else there's ice so you have one small area that's green all kinds of life is going to is going to happen there it's going to be so concentrated all these creatures are going to be there you know emerging and mating laying eggs they all go underground when do they come out different number of years they then compete against each other and if you run a kind of mathematical model of who comes out what are the resources this is a very gloss over the thing the prime number cycles will win out theoretically in such a model but that we don't know if it has anything to do with reality but the picture of that's really cool it's the kind of thing i like he said mm -hmm. okay i ran this model he says you know the prime number cycles won out very likely there were also 19 year cycles and 11 year cycles but you know they went away third you know they went away they, they kind of died out and so we're left with 13 and 17 and so it's consistent with his models predictions that could come out this way interesting so no one's come up with a better app idea so th this might be the case we don't know it's very hard to figure out huh it's very interesting um so i feel like cicadas are uh, like such a, a interesting special creature but if you i mean and not to be like speciest or anything but if we're taking like ants where it's not like you have this, this huge cicada colony and uh you know three different species um in that case are you thinking of it still as like individuals or is that more of an aggregate well i haven't done much music with ants because they don't make sound okay you know per, i mean they do make some sounds but they, they, they haven't made sound that's musically um grab my attention but that could change mm -hmm. so you know ants are, sure there's such thing as an individual ant sure our understanding of them is more holistic and the project i'm working on now which is studying underwater pond sounds mm. and making music out of them writing about them figuring out what they mean the greatest thing about this is we have no idea what we're listening to if you if you go to the most ordinary pond stick an underwater microphone a hydrophone you're going to hear a mixture of plant and animal sounds, 90% of which are unknown to science. Well, we just don't even know what's going on. So you can pretty easily spend a few hours doing that. You're going to hear sounds. No one has any idea what they are. And even though these ponds are everywhere, people haven't yet bothered to figure it out because it's not important enough. It's too hard to know what's making the sound because they, the sound is picked up in the whole range in the pond like a mini version of an ocean. You can't tell where it is, who's doing it. Some of the 10% of them we know, the most obvious sounds, which include the lesser water boatman, a tiny bug that can sometimes sound as loud as a whale. Huh. They make these sounds by vibrating their penises underwater <laughs> at an astonishing rate. And uh, so that's a great story. <laughs> They're not that hard to find. You can hear this phenomenon. Uh, yeah, you go out there, get a hydrophone, put it in a pond. You can see them pretty easily. The ones you see at the surface are not making the sounds. They're, they're deeper in the water making the sounds. But my next plan is to trap some of these critters, put them in a glass aquarium, and observe what are they actually doing. <laughs> so you can learn uh, the technique for yourself. Do not try this at home. I, I don't <laughs> recommend it.
Um, in terms of other like lessons to be gleaned from uh, insects and invertebrates and all that, do you have any sort of uh, you know, lessons to extract for humans? Yeah, I mean, you, musically, you know, they, they teach us how to, to, to form a whole that's greater than the sum of its parts. Each individual needs to know very little to become part of this amazing music that we're hearing. They don't have to think that much about what they're doing. They follow these basic rules. And you don't have to know much about the whole to create a whole that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And that's a kind of remarkable idea right there. Um, I suppose, so like, uh, on, on this little flow chart of uh, topics I wanted to hit, I mentioned, uh, you know, Daniel Dennett using uh, the comparison of, like, this, like, ant formation uh, with, like, Gaudi's uh, cathedral and how they're, you know, examples of emergence uh, and this and that. And uh, I guess, like, I don't know what my point was about that but i, I just wanted to name drop daniel yeah, what, what does he actually say about that does he say that gaudi had no idea about the whole and was just doing part by part and the whole thing was emerging or is he saying something else i i know that such an analogy exists but i can't remember what it's about i i think it was sort of a, a comparison like i think it was like you know getting sufficient complexity of information gets this emergence uh that can be misconstrued as intelligence because you know he's always trying to like be dismissive of what is uh conscious and stuff and doesn't believe in consciousness right a lot lot of philosophers and neuroscientists don't believe in consciousness because they can't find it Mm -hmm. when they're looking they're looking in the wrong places obviously they're trying to find evidence of it in a place that's wrong they're just you know clearly people are conscious consciousness exists Mm -hmm. it's just these guys are you can't find it it's like what's making the sound in the pond we don't know what it is it doesn't mean it's not happening. It just means mm-hmm. you're taking the wrong approach. So if you haven't found the answer, if you say it doesn't exist and, and it's right in front of our noses, then come on, you're just using the wrong methodology. That being said, they might have a point. You don't need an overarching plan or a guide, you know, controlling what the mind is doing. And certainly many of us live as if we have no plan, you know. So mm-hmm. a lot of people are living their lives as if they're not conscious of what they're doing and what the implications are. So maybe that's the point he's trying to make. I'm not so sure what positive, useful contribution he's trying to make by he and his whole ilk who are saying consciousness doesn't exist. Exactly why are they saying that? What's the point? Mm-hmm. You know, I can say good and bad don't exist. There's nothing necessarily right or right. wrong. I can say the truth doesn't exist. And I can make a good point, an argument for why that is. But is it in fact useful? And is it really, mm-hmm. why are you even saying this? Is this going to help us make sense in a world where people say whatever and say it's true and clearly that approach is now under a lot of siege because we see where it's led us mm-hmm. you know i went to college in the 80s we learned about derrida and deconstruction and there's nothing outside the text and nothing's right or wrong there's no absolute truth it's all relative and look what's happened we've seen the world that comes when nobody believes in anything and they just trust whoever they want to say what they say and mm-hmm. that's a scary place we're in and we really have to re-examine that and I think we, we need think, to think more about what's good and bad and what's right and wrong and really take a stronger stand. Like, you know, like intellectual investigation has gotten very weak over these decades, being afraid mm. to say anything, afraid Absolutely. to take a stand. And you, whatever you're doing, you should never be afraid to take a stand and defend your point of view. You shouldn't back off from that responsibility, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. You know, say what you believe in and fight for it, whatever it is. In terms of some of these like philosophy of mind questions of consciousness or uh, you know various ethical things, do you have any like firm credences in that department, like uh, models of consciousness or whatever? I mean, I have talked to Thomas Nagel about what it's like to be a bat. 
mm-hmm. because this is this famous essay and you know he he goes to these these hangs around with this crowd in New York City I sometimes see and if you look at his more recent writings you know I think he's he's now much more skeptical of science and that's much more open to more more mystical ways of understanding the world and more different kinds of consciousness so I I'm pretty sure today in his more experienced older state he would say absolutely we can know what it's like to be a bat and lots of other things and through all this expansion of our senses and technology and listening and paying attention we can sure learn a lot what it's like to be all kinds of animals and plants and anything and so much of human activity is imagining what it's like to step into another being's shoes or place so we can absolutely learn quite a lot about what it's like to be an animal what it's like to sing like a mockingbird or a humpback whale simply by spending time with their sounds and structures and getting inside them it's totally possible and accessible and you know why push this idea that we can't do this that's mm-hmm. a good thing to assign in a class but it's, it's not likely to be right uh going back to the question of uh you know where does music stop i feel like panpsychism is kind of in vogue amongst uh, the philosophy of mind people these days and uh you know if we're, we're taking like the stock market as uh, a waveform like if you know it's just too slow to hear um I don't know. It, it, do you feel like there's anything of value in that world of panpsychism? And well, when, when you when you <laughs> yeah. started talking about panpsychism, I was hearing one thing. When you mentioned the waveform of the stock market, I didn't think panpsychism, but I thought about sonification, which mm-hmm. is the idea you can turn any piece of data into sound. Anything can be turned into music. And traditionally, I found myself not very interested in that because it seemed rather okay. fake. Because you can, you know, sonification is a way to analyze data, just like data visualization. Mm-hmm. We're more used to seeing visualization because we understand it. And it. Without that, data doesn't make much sense. Stock market numbers up, down, up, down. We don't really make sense of that until we see a picture of it. It's so clear. Mm-hmm. You know, turning it into sound to me makes it less clear, but certain kinds of things in data can be understood and, 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 and analyzed and grasped by hearing it which is interesting. As music, a lot of sonified data doesn't sound that good because they're <laughs> yeah. doing it or not thinking musically. But right. then I realized that actually I do quite a lot of sonification myself. Like lately I've been taking these pond sounds and resonating them and doing little sound effects on them that are very subtle. So I still feel I'm learning from their rhythms and their actual sonic presence or I transpose them so, or, or change the speed of something so it's more graspable to human ears like like a, a rhythmic beat you mentioned earlier every two minutes a fin whale going two more minutes <laughs> you know nobody even know it's regular until you speed it up and if you find that it goes that's utterly amazing that these whales would be that regular and that slow mm-hmm. and i heard something similar listening to a pond the other day like some water boatmen going eh. And then a few more minutes, uh, actually, when I made the recording, I said, this is so boring. Nothing's happening. When I looked at the visualization, I saw it was absolutely regular. Hmm. What are they actually, what could they possibly be doing? Are they actually aware of this or is it just happenstance? And then, you know, so I sped it up, played it, showed it to some pond scientists. Like, what's going on? Do these things really have a regular sense of time like that? And, you know, the, the, the scientists were surprised. They go, what? That's what you heard? That's crazy. They just said, that's really interesting. And started to think probably how could you test whether or not that's something real or not. 
But panpsychism in the stock market, how do you think what you just said about waveforms of the stock market connects to panpsychism? I guess just like, you know, people will say sort of like, is, you know, a thermometer conscious? Like if there's any information processing whatsoever, is there some sort of like, you know, as like the uh, integrated information uh, theory guys like Tononi and them, like, uh, I feel like they'll be like, you know, there's a little bit of phi uh, uh, or their measure for uh, consciousness. Um, yeah, that's like, the, you know, Norbert Wiener in cybernetics talking about the thermostat. The thermostat is the first intelligent device because mm. it, it can regulate the temperature. But he knows when to go hot, when to go cold, you know. Right. Like it's like gold. I, there's some there's some sense of that, but it's also a kind of limited sense mm -hmm. of what it means. But I also think what people accept as artificial intelligence is often so weak. Mm -hmm. You know, little sense, not that much really interesting stuff. I'm part of this group called Interspecies IO. Mm. It's a mixture of like musicians, scientists, Silicon Valley people imagining that crunching huge amounts of big data will allow, allow us to talk to dolphins and ants and creatures just by, 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 by letting the, the AI learn and just crunch the data. It's going to know what's going on, mm -hmm. you know, which is, I see as a real act of faith, believing once again that the technology knows what it's doing when in fact it's just like once again probably asking the wrong questions as to what counts as intelligence like you're better off you want to understand dolphins spend time with them interact with them learn from them by participating in what they're doing and surprising things are going to happen so uh you mentioning dolphins uh and the sort of trippy idea of you know uh machine learning uh telling us what they're saying or thinking or whatever uh, uh that makes me think basically uh you have like john Lilly and i don't know if you're familiar familiar with uh, timothy wiley who's this kind of uh he recently passed away but like this very uh eccentric sort of occult figure uh who was you know into like talking to angels and this and that but he was hanging out with lily and he had this telepathic message from the dolphin that said uh synesthete or uh no, synesthete so you don't amnese or synesthes so you don't amnese and I, yeah okay you know it's fascinating that john lily you know became such a trippy character and mm -hmm. that uh, i think we forget that that John Lilly's book, The Mind of the Dolphin, you know, was a mega pop science bestseller. It was mm -hmm. like, it had the level of popular consciousness, like that hardly any book about science has had today. And that people really wanted to believe dolphins are super smart. They have something to tell us that we can communicate with them. And I think they do have amazing cognitive abilities, but probably not some of the things that, that he was sensing there i mean you know he would make these funny charts you know diagrams like you know humans dolphins humans <laughs> left side you know you know build terrible weapons have giant wars kill each other on the right dolphins what do they do live peacefully in the sea who is more or less intelligent you know and yeah. what where they do i think have amazing abilities is, is to use sound to understand objects to use mm -hmm. sonar to recognize things and um you know, I was talking the other day to Scott McVeigh, the man who discovered the structure of humpback whale song. He's in his late 80s. You know, he was saying like, yeah, Lily, and he worked with John Lily. He was working with him in the Virgin Islands and helping. I goes, yeah, Lily, people could say he went off the deep end. He was crazy. But nearly all of his hypotheses about uh, what's going on with cetaceans, dolphins and whales, 10, 20 years later were demonstrated to be correct, even though the scientists investigating them tended not to 
they wanted to downplay Lily's accuracy or his contributions because he had gone off in a different direction mm -hmm. and was talking about things that, although they may or may not be true, don't have to do with science, things you can't quite prove, like tele telepathy and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I don't think we need, you know, supernatural explanations to explain, right. to, to learn about what the animals are doing. If you're interested in Lily, though, you really should investigate Margaret Morse Lovett. Okay. You know, this woman who, who did, she lived in this house with the dolphin, the special house, and she wrote two chapters in Lily's famous book. They're the best chapters written by this woman who, who sort of until recently kind of written out of the history. And it was all her idea. She's the one who wanted to push the work in that direction. And when I was working on my book, I interviewed her. And, and uh, at the time, she had not said very much about it. And the reason I got to do that is I was just at a, at a party somewhere and was talking about my whale dolphin book. And this woman said, oh, yeah, my best friend's mother lived with a dolphin, like in a house. Like, oh, really? <laughs> was it in the Virgin Islands? Yeah. But she doesn't want to talk about it. Like, well, maybe she'll, would she talk to me if I write a really nice letter? And so I wrote this very nice plea. And after that, many people writing on this topic, they got to speak with her and her story is much more widely known. No doubt someone's writing a whole book about her right now. <laughs> Man, cool. I'll, I'll scope her out. I'm excited. Uh, you did so, interview her. She's still around. She can be found. Uh, I'll, interview I'll, these okay. people, these survivors of the great explorations of the 20th century. They're still mm -hmm. out there. So, I mean, John Lilly, obviously, sort of off the deep end. Uh, Timothy Wiley, while well, a sweet man, uh, also kind of off the deep end. Um, I, I, I don't get an off the deep end vibe from you, personally. Um, well, who, it depends who you talk to. What, and is that necessarily a bad thing? The deep mm -hmm. end is, of course, where you want to be. Who wants to swim in the shallow end? You're going to dive yeah. and hit your head. It's the benthic layer. Yeah, that's right. So the, the deep end is, is where you want to be to explore, to go deep <laughs> into things. I studied with Arnines, the founder of deep ecology. Some people thought he was off the deep end. He was an amazing teacher and character, and, but also you know, kind of crazy person to spend time with. <laughs> but he was a major influence on me. And, um, you know... It's important to push the envelope one way or another, whatever mm -hmm. you're doing. Definitely. Well, in in you know doing these uh, performances with whales, where you have like the underwater speaker and the hydrophone and all that, you know, like that as a complete contrast from insects, where you know it's like just such a vastly different scale. Um, you know, there's got to be this sense of awe and an appreciation. Like, um, you know, there's like the whole R selection and K selection, and like I feel like uh, whales just have you know, such a different uh, level of individuality uh, compared to like ants where, or like, I keep on going to ants, but you know, insects where there's some level of, uh, you know, like you said with the cicadas, like they just like don't care if you, if you aren't going to be able to do anything. Um, but that sense of awe from like the scale of whales, like I imagine maybe that's why people attribute some of these like mystical intelligences, but uh, like what, what can you say about the experience of like sharing the mu musical space with these animals? Well, it's, it's a very kind of disembodied experience because you're playing along, you're above water, you're playing music with these creatures underwater, you can't quite see them, you know it's there. You're being connected through the sound, but you're not really in their world. A few times I've swam with whales, and, you know, and when you swim, you can't see them until you get quite close. All of a sudden, they're really close to so the way the mm -hmm. water works. It's not like you see the whale in the distance closer and closer. You see nothing, and at a certain point, it's right there, and you, you hear them before. And, and, yet, and yes, it can be pretty loud when you're close by, but you wonder what you're connected with. 
I'm not someone who felt like I looked into the eye of the whale and my world changed. I've seen <laughs> that line written many places. I listened to the whale. I played along with the whale. I had no idea what it means. I still don't mm -hmm. know. Some interesting music, hopefully, was made that no one species could make alone. But I don't know what it's done to me exactly or to the whale. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just have this music and I listen to it. I think about it. I hope to make it again. I don't really know what it means. But I know some, some exchanges are better than others. Sometimes the whale and the human seem more in sync than other times. Sometimes the out of sync is a good thing. And uh, so I don't, I don't feel I understand that phenomenon so well because it's so hard to get a handle on. Mm -hmm. I know a little bit about what they're doing, but I also think that it's very, um, you know, it's, it's very strange, the idea that there's this one whale species that sings these long, complicated songs like a bird. Mm -hmm. Recently, I did a story for National Geographic about this, where they have this whole detailed online thing showing the structure, you know, bass clarinet, whale, bass clarinet. This is what's going on. The music's really here. Mm -hmm. And what's one thing that's interesting is since I wrote my book, where I wrote that in 1979, National Geographic printed 10 million copies of this whale song record and put it in the back page of National Geographic, a sound page that you'd play on a turntable. And this is supposed to be the greatest single pressing of any music album ever. Nobody prints 10 million of something at once. <laughs> and so since that, I said, you've got to like do something more up to date on whale song and music. And so I kept asking them about this, never heard anything back. Then out of the blue last fall, someone said, oh, we're doing this. We want you to do this for us. I go, really? Do you know I've been like trying to get you to do it for like 15 years? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Said, no, no, we don't know about that, but here's what we need and we need it this time. <laughs> and it was quite fun doing that. I can send you a link to it if you haven't seen it already. Yeah, sure. I'll put in the notes for this. Yeah. Um, cool. Um, and so, but, but the point being is, is like there is something musical about what these whales are doing. They're probably not communicating a lot of complicated information. Like most of the complicated sounds made by animals are not said to have a lot of information content. Mm -hmm. They have varying levels of musical complexity. This goes back to what we talked about before. Like why is the song of a chickadee, doo -doo, just two notes, doo -doo, and the song of a mockingbird could go on for hours, and yet functionally they're doing the same things. Mostly the males are making these sounds. They want to defend their territories and attract a female. Mm -hmm. But why does one need to spend hours doing it and the other does it so quickly? If you're looking for pragmatically, this would say clearly the chickadee is far more advanced than the mockingbird because it gets it done so quickly and efficiently. Mm -hmm. It's all been figured out. It's really like a clockwork machine knows how to get ahead in life. The mockingbird wastes all this time with the strange music <laughs> imitating complexity, the kind of things that humans admire and say, wow, what a cool song. Functionally, they're doing the same thing. So clearly, if we want to understand what's going on, looking for the function is not the way. You have to go deep into the phenomenon itself. And there you find just how musical it is. And another thing I did this past year is collaborate. I don't know if you know about this with the... Two scientists, one field biologist, one computational neuroscientist who wrote this very cool paper comparing Mockingbird song to Beethoven, Tuvan throat singing, uh, <laughs> something from a Disney movie Frozen 2 and Kendrick Lamar, who's of course the most Mockingbird-like with all the sampling and things. Right. And, and, and it would, by the way, was the field biologist who picked all the examples, mm -hmm. except for Kendrick Lamar, which I picked to demonstrate that what the Mockingbird is doing with its own genre and style of music is different than humans, but it's not alien to humans. Human music has some of the same elements. And so we had a good time doing this. 
and the scientific review establishment of this journal had a good time trying to shut us down and complain about this paper <laughs> until they finally had to accept it. We had just too much data and analysis. Very different than what I usually do, which is just tell stories about animals and music and make music and listen. This mm -hmm. was really trying to do scientific work and work together. Science, science is relentlessly and very positively collaborative. Like people mm -hmm. really work together. It's much less about ego than music or art or literature. The whole idea is a group of people together try and solve a problem. It's stronger if there's more people working together than an individual making the point. Whereas in art, you know, it's stronger for the solo artist to leave the band and just be him or herself. They're going to do better. Almost always leaving the band. We know about that. Why do you say that they would do better? Historically, actually, recently there was a some popular press article maybe in the guardian arguing this like especially these days and and, and streaming and modern uh, way music is is consumed it's better for individual artists than bands bands okay, get yeah. lost we, we need to identify an individual with a, having a lot of followers their own story their image with their sound so look at all these bands that um, break up and one person from the band becomes more successful or the band might be a stand-in for an individual that may or may not exist. But that in the realm of pop music and marketing is something I don't know all that much about. So mm -hmm. I'm not going to say more about that. But <laughs> others have noted this. Like this is the time individual artists, bands are better in a more social era where people see them, hear them together, and they, they follow them. Uh, when you were talking about the, you know, the, uh, I guess, sort of non information quality of uh you know these songs and stuff uh and I, it made me think of something else from one of these videos which was like the survival of beauty and you know you're saying like it's basically males trying to like protect or attract a mate and so like to some degree it's about like violence and sex but then like sort of utility like you see like the emergence of these like working songs like you know like the the scottish like you know doing the thing to the whatever uh you know, fabric um and so i don't know those are all like kind of like uh i don't know like sex sure but like i don't know war songs we don't need that much and like yeah well, music is used in all human activities but mm -hmm. is the function of it its main goal is that the way to understand it spotify wants us to classify all music in terms of function mm -hmm. this is good making out music this is studying music this is productivity music and many of my students this is how they understand music they don't know what artists they're listening to but this is a good chill playlist this is a good relaxing playlist this is driving music they know what it's for but i would say music primarily is i mean throughout history all kind there is very functional music but if you want to understand the music don't look at the function to explain it you have to get mm -hmm. into the thing in itself gotcha and uh, the same with evolution like you know we've heard in biology class the peacock's tail is an honest signal it indicates the high quality of this male bird. You should mate with him because he's got a really big, beautiful tail. It <laughs> shows he's got really high quality. Okay, but you know, what's high quality in a, in a house sparrow? You know, it's a small bird that has just a little bit of a, brow, a patch, a black patch, it's the right amount, but the bird can't be too misshapen. Everything is sort of mixture of the pragmatics and a little bit of decoration. But peacocks evolved into something else. It's extreme sexual selection. The reason what's great about the peacock has a giant, beautiful tail is he has a giant, beautiful tail. That's what it is. Sexual selection made that possible, according to Darwin. You know, so uh, you know, females just really like they want more tail, more and more and more, up to the point of ridiculousness. Clearly, the peacock is not an efficient bird. He can barely fly. It's a ridiculous 
reminder of how much you can get carried away with ornament and aesthetics. Mm -hmm. It's about survival of the beautiful, not the fittest. That's why Darwin said we got sexual selection here, natural selection over here. You know, for 150 years of biology classes, they've tried to erase that difference and say the beautiful stuff is an honest signal. It, it, it's a signal of uh, high quality. And a, a mm -hmm. smaller number of biologists is trying to argue against that and say, hey, you're getting away from the thing in itself. You're trying to come up with a function from the, for the beauty instead of trying to understand the beauty. So, and Richard Prum, who wrote the book, The Evolution of Beauty, is also one of the people who um, is pushing this idea. And I, I talked to him extensively in my book, Survival of the Beautiful, about this. Don't try and explain beauty away by saying what it's for. Let's figure mm -hmm. out what it is. What kind I think of I, beauty does nature produce? What kinds does it not produce? I think I heard uh, Prum talking to uh, Robert Wright on his podcast, and of course Robert Wright just babbled on needlessly, uh, not engaging with he with what he was saying. But uh, that's me just trying to criticize. And how did Prum deal with that? Um, I think just uh, you know wanted to end the interview probably. Enough <laughs> uh, already. You're right. Yeah. But uh, okay, so. Uh, with uh, like whales and all this, you know, if you look up whale song on any sort of search engine or whatever, you're going to just get all this kind of crap, I think, like a lot of like, oh, I put, you know, these like relaxing waves over the you know whale It's just kind of like, I feel like not the raw field content that somebody like you is getting to interface with. So if you were to like curate uh, some like whale or like, I guess, marine music or uh, anything like that, that doesn't have extra synths added and, you know, stuff to like spice it up, uh, what would you suggest? I just had to do that because somebody wanted to take my National Geographic, you know, whale bass clarinet duet. Can we add things to this? I'm making, I want to do a giant spatial audio mix. We have these 12 speakers and I, I said, yeah, go ahead, but just don't make it too new agey. Like look, mm -hmm. look at all these nature and whale films that, you know, watch a whale music film they're going to play the whale for like 10 seconds before the synths come in the orchestra the whole hollywood soundtrack do not do that that's not what music of other species is about you have to listen to what's there and so she did and you know and she it was very beautiful what they came up with and you know i also said like i'm not necessarily right here it's just my view i know that the people who put in the synths and the electric guitars and the orchestras they think that that's what the public wants Mm -hmm. They need, they want something familiar to get, get at the unfamiliar and, and understand it in a musical way. I certainly have people criticizing what I do and say you're adding too much human music to natural sounds. So everybody picks their own place on this journey. But w the question I would put forward is, okay, let's listen to this music made with nature, with animals, by this human person. Is the human's music being changed by the encounter with the other species? Or are they mm -hmm. just doing their usual thing in the face of the animal? I brought a lot of people out to play with whales and nightingales and cicadas. And some people just do their thing as if they aren't there. Like here, I play Bach, right. I'm going to play Bach right here. But the more interesting ones, if you're going to be playing Bach, you change your Bach because you're together with a nightingale. Right. Altered by the situation. And some musicians like that, some don't. And there's different ways of understanding your sense of creativity. Yeah, I feel like when I've seen the videos of you playing with various animals, uh, like I can tell that you're actively listening, and yet that act of listening, I feel like, is you know not even central to modern jazz these days. And like it's kind it of be. I mean, I would. I, I think <laughs> the best musicians have it. I, I would. Right. I, I think that all music education, starting with little kids, should involve the music of animals. It should be standard stuff, just like in art. 
you learn anatomy as an artist, you're painting still lives, you know, the classical art education mm -hmm. involves nature and objects. It should be the same for music. Like, okay, we're gonna study music, hear the first scale, so who are the first musicians? Uh, you know, are they not the ancient Greeks or Irish folk music? You know, it's like uh, whales and bugs, and so let's listen to those and think how our music connects to that. It should be standard stuff, it shouldn't be seen as obscure. And I'm hoping somebody develops kind of basic music education program that involves things like that. I'm sure people are working on it. Uh, in terms of like, uh, this is a weird way to ask the question, but like, is there sort of like a visual David Rothenberg? Like, what does he look like? Or what would he do visually? Or... <laughs> I mean, like somebody who's like more geared towards uh, visual media instead of uh, sonic media. Like who, who interacts with nature. There's a lot of people who have animals make art with them, you know. I mean, I love this book called To Whom It May Concern, An Investigation of the Art of Elephants. And I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the author right now. I mean, I should look it up. He was a trainer in the Syracuse Zoo, training of elephants and, and taking care of them. And he noticed this one elephant named Siri would often draw with a stick in the sand. And she said, oh, let's get some paper and ink and a brush. He had this elephant making these beautiful abstract images. And he just collected the paintings and drawings. This is what I love about this project. And just mailed them off to people. What do you think this is? Send to a psychologist, an artist, a curator, a historian, a scientist. And they all he just put down their responses. And when they heard they were made by elephants, people responded in very different ways. What I like about this project is that it's just such a beautiful book and beautiful images. And uh, some of the art you see elephants make together with human trainers is much more uh, simple or like they're painting other elephants and things like that. And that's kind of a little more limiting. But this, this, mm -hmm. this, this book and the way the art is presented expands our sense of who or what can be an artist in very interesting ways. Cool. Um, let's see here. So uh, I but guess I was... Can, but your question also makes me think more like other people who... Um, you know, there's some famous artwork by someone, uh, Celeste is her first name, I think. And when she put a lot of a little zebra finches, birds, and a bunch of electric guitars. In right, right, yeah, yeah. And, and that's pretty cool. It's hard not to like that. Mm -hmm. If I was going to study it more closely, I would be interested in what, how would you, let's take it a work like this. What would make it better or worse? Whenever I, I look at a piece of art, whether music or art, I always say, okay, this is good. What would make it better? What would make it worse? Exactly mm -hmm. the kind of question they don't want you to ask in art school these days. <laughs> In music school, they still sometimes make you ask that. You know, people will look at my music. Oh, it's harmonically so simplistic. Where's the structure? You know, what's going on here? And, you know, you know, there are no chords, things like that. You know, so I'm familiar with that. But in general, I think it's still an important question to ask. Mm -hmm. And, and if, I, if I often I don't know the answer, I just pick something like on the Cicada album I just released. We recorded hours and hours of music. I picked like 70 minutes of it that I liked. Why? How did I pick it? just kind of a feeling listen to some other people in the group and say like oh, you left this out that was good or you know things like that and try to make something everybody was happy with without making spending too much time arguing about it because mm -hmm. it was uh, so many people and I want kind of wanted to get it out to see what happens and so so the idea is um, you know you should you should be able to have some kind of aesthetic criteria in different modes of art you know I like arguing with the works, engaging with them, saying this would have been better, this would have been worse, or things mm -hmm. like that. A lot of people don't. They say, just take it in. Why are you constantly criticizing? You know, well, 
I did spend years studying philosophy. A lot of what philosophers do is generally considered rude by other people. They just <laughs> say, that's not true. You don't know what you're saying. That's not an argument, you know, those kinds of things. And in general, I try and temper that tendency within just like play. That's why for me, it's important to also be making music and not just trying to hopelessly explain things all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so with birds, um, it's my impression that uh, I think they deal more with spectral content and not pitch, right? Oh, that's something that's debated. You know, okay. I mean, in many bird species, they, they're just sort of attuned in, in their brains to to pick up on very special certain ways the sound is presented so that if you change the pitch, they may lose interest. But other birds have songs that change pitch all the time and, and then they're interested in that. Why this has evolved, we don't really know. Sometimes some people say it's the rhythm that matters more than spectral content or pitch, the silences. You know, that a song sparrow is going beep, boop, da, doop, da, 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 that what really matters is doo, 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 doo. Like the rhythm is what they pick up on. Interesting. Lately, I've been uh, getting up really early and it's the solstice time. It's too early, like 4 a.m. to record catbirds. I just figured out now I can do it from my window. I can wake up and go back to sleep, turn on the recorder because they're starting to change what they're doing this time of year. Catbirds generally have a weird sound that people don't really get, but it's totally interesting, very musical in the alien way. But this time of year, they start to repeat phrases. They start to have little melodies that seem more understandable. Like, am I imagining this? Is it really happening? It turns out I'm not the only one who's noticed this. Many birds in this family, as the season goes on, their songs improve. They are better singers. And they, 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 even after mating has already happened, their songs get better and better. You know, they advance somehow, advance towards this standard of the best catbird song that we have only <laughs> a vague sense of what that might mean. Now, across the street, uh, it, you know, there's a parrot that's really well trained, and it's gotten to the point where like, it will imitate the trucks that are backing up and stuff. And like, this is a little bit of a trip to me, but it's, uh, I mean, it makes me think of like auditory scene analysis and then you know, how humans, we have this ability to distinguish pitch very well, but like, that's like this crazy ability to just mimic what's around in the environment. Um, is there anything to say about that sort of mimicry? I've often tried to read this giant book by I think Thomas Bregman called Auditory Scene Analysis to figure mm -hmm. out what exactly it means. I'm not sure I've made much headway in that, but what's so interesting about parrots is they don't really do much mimicking in the wild. Why hmm. do they have this ability they don't use? They have this ability. People kept them as pets. They started to imitate a lot. The simple idea is like, oh, when they imitate, they get a lot of attention from this person that's put me in a cage and might give me some food. You know, if I copy what I hear, they're going to like me more. But is that a good enough explanation? Not really. What do they do with this ability? Can they compose in interesting ways out of all the sounds they know? They do all kinds of stuff. But what are they thinking? In the case of parrots, I do want to, I want, I do want to know why. What is it they're doing? Why do they have this ability? Mm -hmm. What are they doing with it? I know someone who has a pet starling. Lyandalyn Hout, she wrote a book called Mozart's Starling, and she's had this pet starling for like seven or eight years, and, and this bird makes all kinds of odd sounds. And they don't imitate things we think are interesting. They imitate sounds, as you said, of trucks, refrigerators, hums. Mm -hmm. They're very attuned to weird noises. And parrots, you know, we, we, when they can speak, we're impressed. When they imitate little melodies, we're impressed. But starlings, like they imitate refrigerators, microwaves, <laughs> they're more like uh, experimental ambient musicians or something like that. Um, and I guess this goes back to sort of the question of like the stock market wave. But, you know, like, um, is there something to be said about 
I mean, like maybe this is some uh, to some extent like the uh, basis of like techno and music like that that would come out of, like Detroit, where there's a much more industrial sort of environment. But um, I mean, are you attracted to that realm at all? Like the more sort of just like arbitrary noises in your environment, not necessarily nature per se, like more yeah, like definitely from from spending time with insects, I started to get more interested in noise and, and rhythms. And I think a lot of music made out of those sounds is too regular for my tastes. Like, why is it always in four, four? Why is it so metrical? Right. The technology allows us to be in you know, irregular. And then it's much more interesting, like what you hear in West African music or, you know, kind of gamelan music that it's very rhythmic repetitive made out of noises but it's irregular i think there should be more irregularity in that sort of music but i understand why other people disagree they find the four four beat really gets you in and you feel like it's like it's really a world you conform and that's part of part of the beauty of it and when you say irregularity are you saying that more in the sense of like like irregularity versus like asymmetry it should all. It should be more uneven. It should be more not exact. There should be more things in seven against seventeen, and kind of more noises, rhythms that you can't pick exactly. I like irregular movements, and kind of things that that make you want to move, but not in this exact repetitive way. I guess. Do you, do you mean it in the sense of like something that has like some stochastic element or like some sort of uh, perturbation versus like just angularness? It should just be more fluid and irregular. And even when people put irregularity into into 4-4 four, four techno music, it still sounds pretty regular to me. Right. Like mm -hmm. it should get less regular. Play around with it. See how it makes you move. You're going to move in more interesting ways, I think. I mean, plenty of people are doing this, of course, but it, it's mm -hmm. still like a minority thing. Right. It's something a lot of other people think about as well, I think. Um. So, uh, you know, going back to birds, uh, I feel like everybody's go-to, like, bird person in the music realm is, like, Messienne, probably. Um, can you point towards any other interesting figures besides yourself and Messienne? Well, Messienne's really important. My laptop is resting on top of a giant fat book about Messienne to hold up. Mm -hmm. and, and what's so interesting about Messienne is not only that he was interested in birds, but that in his late 20s he figured out all of his systems the kind of rhythms he would use mm -hmm. the kind of harmonies he would use and birds all mixed together you don't have to analyze messian because he told you what he's doing right exactly he decided to use all these elements that's why his music always sounds like it's his music one of his students francois bernard mash who's in his mid-80s now is one of the few students that messian had who was also interested in birds and he's done all kinds of amazingly fascinating music there's all kinds of musicians from all genres working together with bird sounds. There's an English folk singer, Sam Lee, who's singing live with nightingales all the time, like I've been doing. There are, um, who else has really done interesting bird stuff? Let's think other genres, electronic music. There's a DJ in Germany, Dominic Eulberg. He, he lives in a national park somewhere. He's working a lot with insect and bird sounds, and he's made conservation a major part of his work um there's uh hanna tuliki is a, is a her mm. name is finnish but she's a scottish musician and composer has done all these rituals with different kinds of animals sometimes birds sometimes deer she's like a kind of composer of rituals it's like performance art that's trying to get people to really delve deep into what it's like to be another animal species i think her work's really important and hard to classify um meredith monk has done amazing mm. things with nature uh, many more people than you would think 
you know, Egberto Gismonti, the mm. guitarist in Brazil, he's lived with people in the rainforest, learned their melodies and worked it into his, his kind of very accomplished guitar playing. Egberto's in my top five musicians, probably. You should talk to him, interview him. Oh man, uh, yeah. <laughs> my, uh, my Portuguese. Who else, who else would you put him? I'm sure he speaks English. He's worked with all these musicians from. Uh, oh, in that list? Yeah, let's see who's in the list. Yeah. I, I guess like, you know, Ben Maunders in there. Um, uh, let's see here. Egberto. I guess three is a little bit painful. Uh, who else? Uh, maybe like Terry Riley or something. Yeah, he, he'd be great to interview, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Dushan Bogdanovich is in there. Um, and it, you know, he's played with uh, Riley's Kid, which is interesting. Yes. Uh-huh. Well, you. You should certainly talk to Joel Harrison. He interviewed a lot of these people. He has this whole guitar camp, and he's quite entertaining. Yeah. I just published his book. It's a lot of work. <laughs> <laughs> it looks really good, and I'm, yeah. I sent him an email uh, before this conversation, so uh, hopefully we'll set something up. Um, cool. Well, we're here in an hour. Uh, do you do you want to talk about anything else? or uh... Is there anything on your list you think we really should get to? Let's, let's I saw it. one of your interviews was like three hours. That was crazy. Yes, yeah, uh, some, uh, someone desperately wanted to talk. They'd been all alone for months. Um, this guy, that guy's crazy. He put out so many albums during the uh, pandemic, like so many albums, like thousands of hours of yeah, music. Yeah, I mean, some people just do stuff like that. Yeah, I mm-hmm. think it's always a temptation. <laughs> um, okay, I guess um, you know, I saw that you talked to Elliot Sharp, and he said this uh, sort of catchy line of you know, music changes your brain chemicals and. Uh, it made me think of this uh, thing that I ran across um, that sort of is in this meta music world, um, and that's uh, this idea of neuroacoustic quotient or entrainment quotient as alternatives to like IQ and uh, you know emotional intelligence. Like, can you follow the beat? That's a good idea. Like, they should be testing people. Like, no, no, this person just doesn't get it. They can't follow the beat. What does it mean to be able to follow the groove? Uh, yeah, you could talk to Charlie Kyle and Steve Feld about that. They wrote this book, Music Grooves. It's like a long conversation. Okay. These are two like hotshot kind of experiential musicologists, especially Charlie Kyle is an amazing cool. character. You should, and, and yeah, they talk about that exact idea. Like, why don't we value this? And certainly many of the best musicians have this particular rhythmic sense you can't quite explain. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's really amazing. You know, I think that's part of... I think in, in in almost all genres of music, having a right rhythmic sense is more important than we generally admit. Yeah, definitely. Whether you can I, measure I, it so simply, I don't know. I guess people can measure anything, so you probably could. Yeah, I, I definitely feel rhythm has some sort of more fundamental character to it than a lot of other things that people value so much, like pitch. Like I think you're right, and, and, and many scientists think the same for birds. You know. And for cicadas, you know, John Cooley has demonstrated that for, you know males and females both make sounds, and for the for the, the the female to to she flicks her wings while the male vibrates his timbles that are here different ways of making sounds what it mainly depends on what spurs the male on to the next sound is if is timing the exact number of milliseconds after one sound stops the wing flick has to come and and Cooley has practiced this so much he can convince a male cicada to try and mate with a light with a light switch a scene you can see in our in our film Cicada Music in Ohio, which is in Vimeo. You can see the light switch scene. The light switch it's, scene. Uh, okay. It's it's still rated PG, I guess, but you know you can see the light switch in the cicada. It's better than David Attenborough. He he has this whole mating scene with a dead cicada. 
he doesn't even rec- realize it's dead. But um, be that as it may. Uh, with this neuroacoustic quotient idea, like I guess uh, they're like the person that came up with this is this guy Mike Johnson from the Qualia Research Institute. So I mean, they definitely aren't uh, of the you know Dennett persuasion here. They they're big into Qualia and uh, Qualia formalists, I guess. But uh, I guess like their idea is this uh, was it the symmetry theory of valence. So like you know the positive or negative uh, sort of you know phenomenology you might experience they're tying back to sort of like a uh, like a neural symmetry thing and uh so basically it'd be like you know what's your neuroacoustic quotient or like are you able to entrain with whoever you're with on a neurological level and um i don't know if you had had anything you want to riff on with that oh well last night i did this this event with the explorers club and music and exploration online and this guy ken lakovara was speaking who's a mega dinosaur hunter discovered one of the biggest dinosaurs we ever found that's going to appear in the next Jurassic Park movie. And he's also a drummer. I didn't know this about him. He's always drumming when he travels around the world. And he said he was like digging up dinosaurs in in Egypt somewhere and met some Bedouins and was playing and they were teaching him this rhythm. He had a dumbek and and he started trying to riff on it and put some variation in there to put his sort of show his abilities. He said, no, 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 no. That's not it. It's like this. And they play him how it's supposed to be. He says, yeah, well, couldn't you also do this? And they'd say, well, you could do that, but that's just not the way it is. And then he realized that, you know, we often think music is about kind of individual expression, showing where we can vary what's there. But for the Bedouins and their music, music is a, it's an element that helps you belong. Hmm. You got to do it just right okay. to belong. And so they appreciate this kind of entrainment quotient you're talking about, but may not value individuality in the way we're used to in our individualistic society, that being part of the group is what music helps you do. And you don't Mm. mess with it. You don't start to improvise or change unless someone tells you. Right. Which is Mm. interesting because I'm always trying to vary things. I don't want to learn the part exactly. I'm a bad orchestral musician. (laughs) But, you know, who, who do I think I am? You know, mm-hmm. I just had this idea that I should be different, do it my own way. But why is that a better way to think? Right. Well, let's see if there's anything else on here. I think I've probably hit most of it. Um, yeah, well, um, I guess, yeah, the one other thing I would ask is, uh, you know, there's somebody like, you know, George Lewis, um, who, you know, has like the Voyager system. Um, are you familiar with George Lewis? Yeah, George Lewis, trombonist, composer. Yeah, he has. Uh, a, George Lewis had a lot of influence in my life and on me because the first, he's the first philosopher I ever heard speak when I was eighteen years old, and was at the Banff Center for the Arts in a special program on improvisational composition, run by Carl Berger, the Creative Music Studio. You can watch a video about this program that's on online on Vimeo. You can see me with my self-made haircut and wearing a dashiki age 18 <laughs> in the midst of all these people. You really should watch this if you want more. Totally. But George Lewis came and gave a talk. He was playing the Kim One, this early computer and jamming with it. And he seemed really smart. Like, what's this guy talking about? What's he even all about? And so, you know, he's maybe only like, maybe less than 10 years older than me. But that was my first contact with him. And I've seen him over the years many places. And he's you know he's helped me many times writing letters and 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 he's used my an earlier book sudden music about improvisation he's used that in classes as a textbook and i was really honored that he did that and uh, so he is just a very creative character very unique he deserves all the 
attention he's got. I just heard from him the other day. He's been in Berlin for a few months at the Institute of Advanced Study, writing some kind of opera there. And he's, he's just an example of someone I, I kind of like to emulate, someone whose intelligence goes in many different directions, mm -hmm. always creating very interesting things. But he, he doesn't just think about himself. He likes helping other people. Mm -hmm. And I always remember one thing he told me way back you know, in the, at Banff. He said, now the trombone is an instrument no one will ever steal. <laughs> you can leave it in a bus station, you know, somewhere. No one's ever going to pick it up and think it's worth anything, you know. I don't know why I think that's so important, but I've always remembered it. Because, of course, it's a super cool instrument, can do so many things, but nobody thinks it's a valuable object because they just don't know. And that, that might be the same with a lot of things in nature. We don't think an ant is valuable, a cicada, the sound mm -hmm. of a bug. But you kind of focus in on anything and spend more time with it. It's going to seem to mean a lot more than you originally thought it could ever be. It's funny. I, I like was a trombone player as a kid and like a pretty serious one at that. And I just always wanted to be done with it because people wanted the trombonist instead of the guitarist because there's no good trombonist, you know. And so I always was a little bit resentful. And so eventually I was like, I'm done. I'm playing guitar only. And I still have a trombone lying around that I need to grab one of these days. But uh, so with George Lewis, you know, he's interacting with this like synthetic system. And, uh, you know, also this makes me think of Tomasic, who has this article, like, is there, you know, an ethical consideration that you should give video game characters? And it's a little bit ridiculous sounding, but it's a, a serious philosophical reflection. Um, and so what do you think about playing with synthetic uh, intelligences or machine intelligences? And do you think that there's like, uh, I guess to answer some of these weird, you know, AI questions of like, can it be conscious? Like, do you have any feeling on that? Well, I've never thought the machines are that intelligent. <laughs> they help us do things. They could do super cool stuff. But I haven't thought of them having so much agency. Of course, they do when the computer crashes just when you need it or when, you know, it does something relentlessly different than what you want over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So that it, it is... Um, you know, but I, I haven't been so excited about the computer being smart. You know, it's never seemed to be something that's that interesting. Mm -hmm. More interesting is how it can enhance our expression, how it can help us do things we couldn't do otherwise. But what I do like is playing around with sounds digitally and morphing them and messing them to things I couldn't have expected. But some, I always want it to be something that I feel like I could play or that's played. Mm -hmm. the, like lately I was doing this, again a kind of sonification idea you have a have like a, a, a either a pond sound or a rhythmic bird song playing other instruments like it took a sedge warp mm. you know which is very rhythmic European bird it goes on and on and on without stopping and have it play you know I, I used in Ableton Live there's three ways you can turn sound into MIDI you know drum mm -hmm melody or harmony so you just see right. what, it, what does it do with that sound it came up with three different midi files played them together the bird ends up playing your melody harmony right. and and rhythm and it's kind of interesting it kind of like it really is learned from that bird but it's turned into something else you can turn off the bird you have the sense of the bird there it's a kind of thinking like a composer in a way but using some automated tools to help you that kind of thing i like but i don't need the machine to play with me mm -hmm. and sort of be like try and be intelligent 
I, I used to make so much more use of those functions. And like, I, I have something from back in the day where there's like a water dripping and it. it was so rhythmic and like pitch oriented that I just was like, I'm going to put this through the turn to MIDI. And yeah, I need to get back to that. That's mm -hmm. uh, a really yeah, amazing. I, I mean, I like these things when you get surprising results that you think sound good. Like I say, this sounds kind of cool. This is really interesting. With the ponds, it's also very good for what you talked about earlier because you can get this very rhythmic sound um, that's not, you can't quite duplicate that rhythm. You can't quite play it. Like the pond is playing these sounds. And I've, I've hold several albums worth of future music of this nature. I'm trying to figure out what to do with it. Awesome. And I'm working with basically different collaborators writing words and different voices and, and um, sounds that, that really is, um, you know, I, I, I'm liking more and more collaboration when, when people give surprising elements mixed in to the story. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool. Well, I feel like um, we can end here. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for talking to me. Yeah, today. thanks so much. You've got an interesting series of people you're talking to here. I think <laughs> you, know, you can you can keep doing it, get the word out. And I, I think you can, uh, I'm sure a lot of people would be interested in this. I don't know where you, where do you get most of your listeners? Have you tracked them? Like in what platform do they find out about it? You don't care. Um, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm not caring enough and I should. And, uh, you know, the, they offer the analytics and I need to actually look at them, but I, don't, I have a tiny little audience as of now, but, uh, yeah, I never look at those things. And then, but I'm, I'm amazed at these super successful podcasts that sound so bad that you know, some <laughs> things like, how, how can this be popular? It's just not good, mm -hmm. you know? And then of course there's so much interesting stuff because we all know that to get attention, it's a matter of seeking the attention, pushing for the attention rather than deserving the attention. That's sort of the essence of life. Yeah. And all these podcasts, you know, there's a narrative around them that this is the one that you're supposed to listen to if you're this type of person. Everybody right. somebody is telling you, just like music, um, you know, this this podcast will calm you down. This will make you more productive. This will make you less productive. <laughs> this will make you go crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Yeesh. well, cool. Um thanks so much again for thanks talking. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks for inviting me and I look forward to perusing the whole collection of things you've done and you you definitely asked very interesting questions like you're definitely thinking in many different directions that flow chart is sh shows <laughs> a wide range of your you know neurological connections shall we say which is uh, great to see so well yeah i feel like when i came across your work i felt very much like at home with it and so uh you know i thought maybe i can tap into some interesting parts uh that aren't usually asked about about yeah. you know oh yeah it's good stuff. you should talk to that woman who talks to plants the scientist who started you know, she was studying coral reefs, Monica, it's her first name. And, and then she, the plants started telling her things like, you don't, don't, you're asking the wrong questions. You know, she felt that the subject of her research was becoming conscious in a kind of uh, unusual way. And it, it's work that's very interesting and also been criticized a lot for being just too crazy. But I think she's not too crazy. Cool. Uh, Monica, so, uh, just Google Monica G, coral reef sound. Uh, I'll tell you because uh, well, give me one second here. It is called, uh, come on. Mm, yes. Monica Gagliano. She's Italian and lives in Australia. Cool. Awesome. I'll, I'll uh, see if she'll talk to me. <laughs> His New York Times article begins, 
Monica Gagliano says she has received Yoda-like advice from trees <laughs> and shrubbery. She recalls being rocked like a baby by the spirit of a fern. She is ridden on the back of an invisible bear conjured by an osha root. She once accidentally bent space and time while playing the ocarina in a redwood forest. <laughs> All she right. just got a multi-million dollar grant from a foundation to investigate the consciousness in plants. So wow. More cool. power to her. My yeah, interest is peaked. So, all right. Great to talk to you. Yeah, likewise. See you, see you later. Sounds Bye. good. I'll send you this audio file right now. Awesome. Thank yeah. you. Bye.